0: Okay, I know this looks like an ordinary bounce and we got Bitcoin back at 20,225, but I'm actually gonna show you today why I think this bounce actually is different from all the other bounces. And if my theory is right, let's just say, hear me for a second, if my theory is right, Then this could be the beginning of something massive for Bitcoin. In fact, so massive for Bitcoin that I actually think it could take Bitcoin over the previous highs. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Also, we're going to get we got Powell going live in a couple of minutes talking about crypto. So I am monitoring that for us over here. Uh, here he goes. This is this hello
1: to everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, bienvenue à Paris. Welcome to Paris and to the Banque de France, even if you are not exactly in our premises, which are quite close to
0: Lulu. Okay, so I'm gonna keep monitoring that. Uh, In fact, our team's gonna keep monitoring that. We're gonna cross over that when it's time for Powell to speak. We've got a lot to talk about. We've got Doquan and potentially an arrest warrant with Interpol. We've got some altcoins I wanna talk about, and it's just gonna be a big show. So I'm here in Singapore, uh, wasn't gonna do a show, doing an unscheduled show. Let's do it. Get the fuck out of bed, bitch, go. Get up, get
2: up. I got to go. uh. Gotta wake up, gotta wake up, bitch, get get up. Get up, get up.
0: Yo, 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 I must say, I love, I love this fam. I love this Sam. Bunch of DJs here anytime of the day not scheduled or unscheduled. You guys are here to support me while I bring you crypto love and crypto wisdom. Now, listen, guys, this is a completely, completely, completely unscheduled stream. I wasn't supposed to stream, but there was a Bitcoin breakout. And I think I know why Bitcoin is breaking out while there are so many currency wars. There's also a PAL speaking live around tokenization in, in, my, in, in finance. And I think that's also going to be quite big. So we're here. We're going to do this together. I need you guys to do me a huge favor. Because this is not a scheduled stream, I need you guys to smash that like button. I need you to subscribe to the channel. And if you're not subscribed to the channel, then what I need you to do is I need you to, to hit that bell notification as well, because that will tell you when we're going live. And there's going to be a lot of unscheduled streams in the next couple of days. So let's do this, guys. Let's do this. Let's do this. There's so much to talk about. I guess, look, the team the team is watching this um they will tell us when pal goes live so we're not going to miss anything you've got nothing to worry about also i know i've got you guys in the chat so between the team and the chat we'll get this one right i want to talk about other things i want to talk about more important things and that's this over here so by the way you can see i'm in singapore i don't have my regular streaming setup i'm in a tiny room if i tell you this room is tiny um I'll, in fact on twitter i'll post a little video of what this room looks like right now you will laugh your heads off but here i am and I'm, I'm doing it i'm doing it i'm bringing you crypto love and crypto wisdom all right let's go so let's look at bitcoin and let's look at this pump that we're getting uh in bitcoin so we were Testing lows. But in fact, we weren't actually testing the lows. We were trading in that range. Remember, I told you there was that range. And I said, every time Bitcoin goes to 18,800 or so, you should be buying. And in fact, I told you guys that you should have bought the, the range at the bottom of that range. And now we're back up at 20,263. The good thing is that if you look back at this, Bitcoin hasn't tested that, that bottom. Where, remember, I said to you, I think that that was the bottom. That was the June bottom after the Luna Unwinded, the Three Arrows Capital Unwinded. And I said, look, we had so many forced sellers, um, so many li- liquidations, forced liquidations, that I think that that was the bottom and You know what? We haven't even come back to test that low yet uh, at all, despite the fact that on the stock markets, we almost, almost, almost tested it on the NASDAQ. So that is the June low on the NASDAQ. And the NASDAQ has had a bloodbath in the last couple of days um, and almost tested that low. In fact, that low on the NASDAQ was about... Eleven thousand and fifty-five, and Nasdaq went down to eleven thousand one hundred sixty. So you can pretty much say that the Nasdaq actually tested uh, tested that low. Um, so very encouraging to see that even though the Nasdaq was going down, Bitcoin held its held itself eighteen thousand eight hundred. It wasn't going down, even though there was a bloodbath on the Nasdaq. And let me tell you, it has been an absolute bloodbath on the Nasdaq. This is what the Nasdaq looks like in the last month. Now. I know for crypto, it doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're talking about shares like Microsoft and Google and Apple and Meta going down 19%, 14%, 15%, and you consider that most of the pensions or most investors in the US and most ETFs in the US are indexed somehow towards the NASDAQ, you realize just how big this NASDAQ collapse has been. In fact, September has been a huge, 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 bad, bad, bad month for the NASDAQ and Bitcoin hasn't even come back to touch its lows. And I think I know why that's happening at the moment. In fact, if you look at uh, Charlie Beliello's tweet, he says only 3% of the S&P 500 closed above their 50-day moving average. So this is a, a, huge, um, uh, a, a huge collapse in the NASDAQ, and the NASDAQ testing its June lows, and it, 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 it will probably break them at some point. And hopefully, Bitcoin will still hold the levels that Bitcoin's holding. I did see this tweet, which shows... How the current bear market fares out relative to other bear markets. So if you compare where we are to where 1970 to 79 was, you can see 79 was brutal. 80 to 89, also quite brutal. 2000 to 2009, that was the big dot-com crash. Brutal. And if you compare that to where we've been now, we haven't even started. So there is a chance that we haven't even started. But generally, when things get bad, you'll realize that a lot of people will say that it's going to get worse. And that's kind of where we find ourselves now. We find ourselves where everyone has resigned to the fact that it is bad out there. Everyone thinks it's going to be bad. Interest rates are going to continue to go up for a long time. Markets are going to continue to come down. And we're starting to feel that sense of panic. We're starting to feel like investors are absolutely panicking. And that's usually when we get some kind of relief bounce. I'm not going to say it's the end of the bear market because I don't think it's in the bear market, but I do think that it is some kind of relief bounce. When you get the Nasdaq doing that in a month or doing that in fact, let's quickly measure w- what the Nasdaq did in the last in, in, in the month of September month to date. So that's the thirtieth of that's the beginning of September, we're down about 10% in September. Now for the Nasdaq, that is huge. That's that's a massive number. Um, and I don't know if you guys remember, but a while back I said to you, I think that the narrative is going to change. I, th- I said to you that I think that the narrative is going to shift from interest rates to the Dixie. In fact, that was about a month ago when I said to you guys, I, I tweeted this and I also said it on the show, I said, the Dixie just broke a previous high. This was when the Dixie was still at 105. I said, a, a close above this level, may mean a much stronger US dollar Markets all about narratives. For the last nine months, it was about inflation and interest rates. For the next couple of months, it's going to be the Dixie, and that's going to be the narrative. And that's exactly what's happening. You can see what the Dixie has done. The Dixie done, A, it's, it's staying in that parabola, which is uh, very scary. Um, but on the other hand, you can see that actually May, 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 just, just, just wicked above this trend. So we want to see if it breaks through this trend. My feeling about the Dixie is that it is... Um, slightly over-traded at the moment. I think that this trade is over-traded. And to be honest, if this was an altcoin, then I wouldn't be buying this altcoin anymore. I would say, look, time to take profits. And I think it's time to take profits. People are also telling me, people are saying, uh, what's happening with Powell? Guys, we are watching. Don't worry. We've got the whole team watching. As soon as Powell comes on, we're going to get a phone call. So you really have nothing to worry about. We're keeping you guys updated. So that's what's going on. The Dixie breaking this, it did... Uh, it did get some uh, resistance at this line over here. Let's watch and see if it starts to come down. What we are seeing though is we're seeing that right now the market is leveraged again. So you can see that, that here, here, here is the Bitcoin open interest and you can see that the open interest, and that shows you guys the amount of leverage in the market, is that there is huge open interest in Bitcoin and that we are um, pretty leveraged. But I did some digging. And remember when we did the Ethereum show, and at the end of the Ethereum show, this was the end of the Ethereum show. Do you remember what I said? I, something happened and I said, guys, it's actually going to be, a, 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 the price is actually going to go down. And there was a reason why I said the price is going to go down. Well, listen to this. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good day. Let's see. Oh, wait, hold on. I'm getting some statistics here on GMX. Okay, hold on a second. So GMX, the total longs are double the total shorts. That's not good. That means that the longs would probably get liquidated. So remember that happened when we did the Ethereum show. Well, now, if I go to GMX and I look at the total shorts versus the total longs, you got the shorts about 50 to 60% higher than the total longs. So that means that right now, what could possibly happen is we could actually, we have got a lot of leverage, and it seems that this leverage is actually now to the short side. So more people have been calling the short. Now, you know that when, people, when a lot of people call something short, what happens? Usually the price goes up. So if you take the Bitcoin chart and you say, okay, hold on a second, the majority of people are currently short. If this plays out like we think it's going to play out, this price goes up a little bit more and then we start creating a huge short squeeze. So pay attention to that because that may be the beginning of something much bigger. It may be the beginning of a run to 22, 23, maybe even uh, 24,000. So keep your eyes very, very, very close to this, to this Um this ratio on, on GMX. You can see most people are short. Right now, we are seeing the beginning of a, of a short squeeze. And I think that if the short squeeze does play out, then I think it's going to be, um, I think that could be the beginning of something. Um, I do want to show you this. So, okay, we have elections. Um, we, we do have some good news. And in the good news for the markets, one is the markets, the NASDAQ and that have already run a lot, they've, they've come down a lot. And usually, when they come down so fast, You need to have some kind of reversal. That's the first thing. Second thing is we actually have Biden and his his administration actually watching the markets. So actually watching the markets and they're saying, look, we acknowledge that there is volatility. Now, generally, I wouldn't pay attention to this, but 48 days before, 45 days before the midterm elections, I do pay attention to when the Biden administration said they're monitoring market volatility. Because even if they create a fake pump, Biden is not gonna let people go into the elections hungry, unemployed, starving, and making losses on the investments. And I think that 40 days to go, 45 days to go before the midterm elections, that's probably a good time to start uh, to start getting yourself, to start positioning yourself for the election. Also, 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 September is known to be a brutal month for market. We said that in the beginning of September. We said all you need to do is you need to survive September, right? October is the opposite. So they actually call October the bear market Killer or the bear market breaker. And if we look at the last couple of bear markets, in fact, there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. There are 18 bear markets. And of those bear markets, one, two, three, four, five, six of them have ended in October. So I'm not saying that this bear market could be, could be over, but worth paying attention that usually September is a really bad month and October is usually a good month to market. It usually usually breaks markets. Also, we've got a lot of Fed personnel talking this week and one of them, Evans, says he's getting a little nervous about going too far too fast with Ray Tux. So that's like dovish talk from the Fed and that's not something that we've been accustomed to from the Fed. So dovish talk from the Fed uh, coming out there he says at some point it'll be appropriate to slow the pace of rate increases and hold rate for for a while just to assess the impact for the, on the economy and I think that that 's probably a smart thing to do because it takes time for the effect of the rate tax to actually flow into the economy and um, and i think it's a I think them saying that you know let 's keep raising rates but then at some point we're going to have to stop raising rates and we 're going to have to see what the effect is on the economy and, uh, and and then and then make a decision all right so um People are still asking. Don't worry, Paul's not speaking yet. Some other guy speaking. I don't know who is. Here has he is. Has
1: been conducting since 2020. Nine
0: experiments with a wide range. We'll let you know as soon as Powell's on. But before that, I do want to show you what I think is going on with Bitcoin and why all of a sudden we've had a pump. It doesn't really make. I mean, what caused the Bitcoin pump? It doesn't really make sense that there's a Bitcoin pump. Markets have been coming down. There's not any good news in sight. In fact, if you look at the NASDAQ, even though we had a slight, slight, slight bounce in NASDAQ, less than 1%, you had Bitcoin rocketing today. So what is it? What, what is it that made, that, that made Bitcoin rocket today? And I think it's a realization that I had this morning, and I think that, re- that realization a lot of people are starting to have at the moment. So let's, let's go through the theory, and then you guys can decide whether you want to buy this theory and invest behind it or, or not. And the theory stems off uh, or starts off with this thing around narratives. And I keep saying to you that crypto is actually all about narratives. And remember, we had the interest rate narrative before. And I kept saying to you, it's all about interest rates and inflation and the high inflation will make high interest rates. Well, that in, that narrative is now gone. And about a month ago, in fact, just over a month ago, on the 23rd of August, I tweeted and said, the new narrative is actually going to be the Dixie. And since then, the narrative has been the Dixie. And in fact, that is what's happened to the Dixie over there, as you can see. And at the same time, while this has happened to the Dixie, you've seen the 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 dollar the dollar destroy a whole lot of other currencies. So I mean you saw the great the, the Great Britain pound. Um and in fact, let's just take a look at 2022. So if we take the beginning of 2022 and we go all the way down to where we are today, the pound was at one stage down twenty five percent against the dollar and the pound's not the only one that's getting killed against the dollar in fact you 've got the euro against the dollar and if we go back to January and we look at how badly the euro has been destroyed against the dollar against the dollar since january you 've got the euro also down sixteen percent towards the uh, against the the dollar and these are levels that the these currencies and these are first world currencies haven 't seen for 20, 30, and 40 years. So as the Dixie, the dollar index, which is actually measures the strength of the dollar against other currencies, goes up, and people flock to US dollars, all the major currencies and all the minor currencies around the world have been collapsing. And it's even currencies like the Japanese yen. The Japanese yen is known for its stability. In fact, in Japan, there's no interest rates. There are just simply no interest rates. Um, That has also devalued 20% against the dollar. Now, these are major currencies. And with all these currencies, what we've seen is we've seen that there's been huge interventions by the central banks to try and support these currencies. In Japan, we've had buying of the yen on the open market or selling of U.S. treasuries on the open market, which they haven't done in, in many years. In the UK, um, we had um, in the UK. We also had interventions. Um, They came out yesterday with this huge announcement or what we thought was going to be a huge announcement. And Actually, all they said in this huge announcement is that the role of monetary policies is to assure that demand does not get ahead of supply, blah, blah, blah. And all they said is they will do whatever it takes to return inflation to its target of 2%. And now what we're expecting is that the UK will raise interest rates by 2% uh, before November. So that's another one of the... the, uh, interventions that happen. So you've had China intervene as well. China has intervened so much that it's actually now come out with statements saying that uh, regulators ask to avoid trading activities that cause big fluctuations in the security market. Not only that, they've actually gone into the security markets and are buying stocks. Um, they're buying stocks to, to stabilize the market. Okay, so, so all these banks, major banks in first world countries, have actually started to intervene that's how bad this strength is of the US dollar so um, in, in fact when the British pound uh, collapsed the other day just to give you perspective on how bad this collapse is this collapse was as bad as the period or the, the number of days where, jo- where George Soros attacked the British pound and almost destroyed the British pound so in in so uh, Alex Kruger says last night's GBP, Great Britain pound flash crash was almost as large as the infamous Soros-driven Black Wednesday of 1992. It went down 4.8% then, and it went, it went down 4.3% um, now. So that's where we're at. If you want to know what caused the British pound to collapse, well, you can go watch Miles' show, which you did earlier, um, or you can just read a couple of articles. Essentially, what the UK did was they passed tax cuts to try and stimulate the economy, and with those tax cuts, there were concerns that they wouldn't be able to repay their debt and they wouldn't be able to hold the stability of their currency. And that's what caused it. But it's not only those those currencies. In fact, every currency has, well, not every, but most currencies in the world have depreciated against the dollar. If you take the year to date and you look at all the major currencies in the world, even big currencies, South Korean won, Swedish krona, Japanese yen, British pound, all of those have devalued by 20%, 19% against the US dollar. And what you're looking at here is mainly first world uh, uh, currencies but what about third world currencies what about the sri lankan currency what about the indian currency what about the brazilian currency Th- the turkish currency those if you think that these currencies have collapsed against the dollar well can you imagine what it's like for the con- the emerging markets and this is where my theory comes in this is where my whole theory comes in we're in a period now we're in a period now where the dollar is strengthening and the dollar is showing no sign of reprieve as people run to the dollar to try and save their and to try and save their money, right? So people are now running for the dollar. Um, at the same time, what's happening is all the other currencies are starting to weaken, and because the dollar is getting so expensive, because the dollar is getting so strong, it means that most countries that have a lot of debt—in fact—and most countries do have a lot of debt—and their debt is usually denominated in US dollars—simply won't be able to pay back their debt. So if you think about a country. Take, for example, Greece or Argentina or Turkey, who has debt and their debt is denominated in U.S. dollars. When their their currency weakens relative to the U.S. dollar, they need to take a whole lot more of their currency to repay that original loan. And most countries simply cannot afford to repay the loan. And what that's going to cause is it's going to cause a spiral in the currencies. So as the dollar gets stronger, it's going to cause a spiral and a collapse in all the other currencies. And so if you think that, you think that th- these collapses that I showed you are bad, can you imagine what happens when some countries cannot repay their debt? In fact, we saw it with Greece, and I think we saw it with Argentina a while back, what happens when they default on their debt. And now because the dollar is so strong and most debt is actually dollar denominated, there's a big chance that most of these countries won't be able to pay it back and their con- currencies will get destroyed completely. So now put yourself in a position of someone who live- who's living in these countries. And it happened to me before when I was living, or when, when I was, when I am living in South Africa, but it happened to me before earlier in my life when I was in South Africa. And what happened was the currency collapsed. And when the currency collapses, the problem is that you don't know or you don't know where to put uh, your money. So when your currency collapses, usually what you can do is you can run to dollars. The problem is with a dollar that that trade is overcrowded. In fact, not only is it overcrowded and you got the dollar index, um, uh, um, at, at highs and very scary to buy into dollar index, but the problem is that usually in a lot of these countries you actually can't even get your hands onto dollars, which means that you end up playing a black market or street premium to actually buy dollars, and that premium can go up to one hundred percent. In fact, in Zimbabwe, I remember that the guys had to pay over a hundred percent to buy dollars, so there was a quoted rate and you had to pay double that rate. So what do people do? So so what do what do people what do people do in towns like this? People who live in these countries they can't repay their debt. Well, they go and buy dollar-denominated assets. What are those dollar-denominated assets? Usually, property. If you can buy property and property remains dollar-denominated, that's a good place to store your wealth. So, if you see that your currency is going to collapse, the first thing that you do go out and buy property, because you know that a home is a home is a home, and for as long as there are people living there, there will be demand for the home and its bricks and mortar. You can buy gold. You can buy silver if you bought gold and silver, they're illiquid and you can't transport them. You could buy the dollar, but the dollar, as I've showed you, is a very, very, very crowded trade. And so this is what I think is going to happen. I think that people are going to look at this and they're going to say, look, if I'm living in Britain and my currency is devaluing, I should put my money into Bitcoin. Because not only if I want to leave, like the Ukrainians or, or, or the Africans, if not only because, because I want to leave, I can just take the money with me on a USB port or on a, on a, on a hard drive, on a, on a ledger or a trezo, but I'm buying something that's dollar denominated. And so I tested, this, I, I tested this earlier and I want to show you guys a chart. This here is, let's just take a date. So we'll take a date. The date is the 20th of, let's take the date of the 19th of September and let's go to the US dollar chart from the 19th of September and let's go to the four hour chart just to be fair. Um, and that is the 19th of September and here it is. If I take the 19th of September to where we are right now, Bitcoin has gone up 10.41% relative to the US dollar, right? Cool. Let's take that same chart on the Great Britain pound, on the British pound. And let's take the 19th of September and let's take a, a chart to where we are now. And you can see that, the, that Bitcoin has gone up 17% to the British pound. You see that? And so what I'm trying to say to you is, we are watching the price of Bitcoin relative to US dollars. Which is probably a mistake. We should be watching it relative to all the other currencies in the world that are collapsing. And what people are going to start, but what people are going to start noticing is that they need to get out of their assets, and they can get into U.S. dollars, they can get into property, they can get into gold and silver. But there's actually a very, very, very good viable alternative in Bitcoin. And I think that that's what's going to drive the next generation of Bitcoin adoption. In the last, in the last. Um, Hold on, people are saying speech. Let's just have a look here. Uh, I don't see it. Let's just have a look. ...of partners. By working on Interoperability... Nothing yet. Um, The last cycle was driven by inflation, and Bitcoin was tested as an inflation hedge. That's what happened. This cycle is actually different. This is a cycle where Bitcoin is going to prove itself against currency devaluation against the US dollar. And because Bitcoin is primarily priced against the U.S. dollar, then it may be a great trade for people who want to hedge themselves around currency devaluation. And the last thing you've got to remember about this is when currencies of third world market economies collapse, of emerging markets collapse, usually people want to flee the country. You saw it vaguely. You saw, it, you saw a small bit of it in Ukraine where people wanted to leave. And the last thing that you want to leave with is U.S. dollar notes or the currency— Or the currency that that country holds. And so I think that we're about to enter a new cycle with Bitcoin. The cycle will be around all currencies devaluing against the US dollar and a very, very, very crowded trade in the US dollar. And so people may look for another alternative to invest in, one that hasn't run uh, parabolically, one whose chart doesn't look like this. And I mean, you wouldn't buy that, right? But what about this? What about a chart that has done that? In fact, let's go just to a bigger. What about a chart that's done that? Maybe that is something to buy. Maybe that is something to buy. And so I think that whilst this trade is overtraded, this trade is still a good trade. And what's even a better trade is when you take it against these these currencies that are collapsing. As I said, from the 19th of September, Bitcoin's gone up 16.52% against The pound. Let's take the uh, euro, just to show you guys the same example. Uh, Let's let's take let's take a Bitcoin Euro trade, a BTCER. I know you guys are laughing, but if you saw my setup here, if I touch anything, a towel's gonna fall onto my head. Uh, Okay, let's go to September nineteenth, where we were earlier. Yeah, there it is. And we go up there, you see Bitcoin's up f- the 14.26% against the euro. And if we take the Japanese yen, so let's take the JPY. Um, so let's take BTC JPY. Now, the Japan- Japanese one's a little bit more stable because remember, their government intervened. But even, even, even the Japanese yen is Bitcoin relative to Japanese yen, 12%. And so what I'm trying to show you is, Because Bitcoin is priced in dollars, it may be an amazing hedge when the dollar is destroying other currencies, and in particular, when the dollar is an overcrowded trade and has already gone parabolic. And so for me, that may actually be the beginning of the next cycle. One was the inflation hedge, and now it's against the collapse of currencies against the US dollar, and the US dollar is too too overtraded. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you think i think it's i think that that's what's going to happen um look let's time will tell time will tell time will tell but let me know what you think maybe that's why we have uh this pump which is not twenty thousand let's quickly check in on powell uh powell is not speaking yet is he just have a look uh don't see him speaking yet no i don't see him speaking yet let's talk about Dokwan. i'm supposed to meet him i came here to singapore and the last correspondence that i had with him is we were going to meet here in singapore um, but now I'm actually too scared to, to telegram him because I don't know who's got his phone and I don't know where the hell he is. That, that's the truth of it. Um, you've probably all seen this, but probably worth mentioning that there was news that Interpol issued a red notice for Do Kwan. So that was the, how this all started. A red notice is effectively a notice by Interpol that says, that basically says that he's wanted. And it says, red notices are issued for fugitives wanted either for prosecution to serve a sentence. A red notice is a request to law enforcement worldwide to locate and provisionally arrest a person pending extradition, surrender, or similar legal action. So this allows you to search all people that have a, um, a, a red notice against them. So I did a search for Do Kwan. I didn't want to put it in nationality or anything else. Let's just see if there is a, actually a red notice on his name. No red notices. So I don't know if there is or isn't a red notice. There is a rumor that there is a red notice. I do know that he says that he's cooperating with law enforcement. He says we're in the, we're in the process of defending ourselves in multiple jurisdictions, and we've held ourselves to a very high bar of integrity and look forward to, class, to clarifying the truth over the next few months. Um, he also was tweeting today like nothing's wrong. He said, I mean, trader is, he said, stablecon, where are you hiding, fam? It's okay, you can DM me. He says, I'm writing code in my living room. How about you? Um... He says, for something that has notice in it, it sure gives no notice. Try to search, find nothing here. So he's still tweeting. He's still tweeting like, like, like nothing's wrong. But at the same time, and I don't know how true this is, Korean prosecutors allege that Dokwan tried cashing out over 3,313 Bitcoin through Kucoin and OKX after an arrest warrant was uh, issued for his for his arrest. Uh, they allege that the funds came from the LFG reserves and they were put directly into an exchange account. So uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't actually know um, what the story is here. Let's keep following this. To be honest, even though there's no red notice, it does feel like the net is really, really tightening on him. And if I if I think about it, I don't actually think that Do Kwan did anything wrong. I mean, I don't think he was fraudulent. I think they may get him on like issuing a I- illegal security or unregistered security in an ICO or something like that. But the truth is, I think it sets a very bad precedent. And the precedent is. And I'm saying as long as you didn't commit fraud, I think the precedent is that if you innovate and something fails and something collapses, then there is a chance that you'll go to jail. And that's not something that you want. That's not something that you want. Um, People are asking, where's Powell's speech? Guys, we're watching. Here it is. I mean, this is the live stream of where it's going to happen. For possible digital euro in
2: 2023, and this will lay down the principles for the digital so euro. So they're
0: not yet. They're not. They're talking about the the digital euro. We will then have the opportunity to debate and amend our proposal. So let's look at one or two other things that are happening in the market. I did see some other great news uh, coming out of the market. The first thing is, remember, I said to you that when Ethereum goes into proof of stake, a lot of people and particularly institutions are going to start locking up the Ethereum in the ETH. Uh, in the ETH contract because you're now starting to earn quite a bit of yield and so what we're seeing is we're now seeing that there's over 14 million Ethereum locked in the Ethereum 2.0 deposit contract 14 million ETH now securing the network uh, in the proof of stake Um, also I saw that Voyager was brought by FTX Uh, they paid 1.4 billion or I don't know if it was exactly 1.4 billion because they said something like in fact let me show it to you that they bought 1.4 billion worth of assets. So FTX's U.S. bid is valued at approximately uh, 1.422 billion. The fair market value of Voyager's cryptocurrency assets to be determined at which current market prices is uh, 1.3 billion. So it seems like they paid 111 million plus the value of the actual assets. That's more or less uh, what's been done here. So that also happened today. Um, Cosmos, they having their... um, their DEVCON, so to speak, or their, their event. Um, and they've published a white paper for Cosmos Adam 2.0. Now, this could get quite interesting, because remember, we love the Cosmos technology, but we don't like the Cosmos chain. That's the problem. We love the technology, we don't like the chain. Um, hopefully, the chain... Um, let's see, Powell, people, let's see what, what Paul's saying. Guys, there's nothing about Powell here. He's not talking it. Trust me, I've got this the whole team on standby here.
1: Rules and regulations are essential and must be tailor-made to meet
2: this fast-evolving and exciting area. Thank you.
0: Okay, I think you may come on now.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Mayred. As you speak wonderful French, merci beaucoup. And if you allow me two words of European pride, uh, Europe is seen as complex, and it is indeed indeed. But it's very good to see how we can deliver on regulation. And second, Europe is not seen as especially innovative, but it's good to see that at least on CBDCs, and we'll come back to it, we are possibly on the front line. Thank you very much again. Nothing to be proud of. I now turn to our first round table about how should central banks address financial stability challenges related to decentralized finance. I don't need a long introduction. Uh, we are all aware that there was, for years, this challenge of accelerated technological disruption. And there is, in the more recent past, the additional challenge of monetary normalization. And we saw that the change of monetary policy has exposed weaknesses in the crypto asset ecosystem. We are lucky enough to have an outstanding panel to, to, to address this difficult question. And may I welcome online three of our participants. First, you see probably... I see Christine Lagarde already on screen, and we will see probably Jay Powell in, in, in one minute. They are the two leading... I thought he was going to arrive in person, I attention. really did. So, Bonjour. Good morning, Jay, because it's very early for you. Welcome to both of you. Uh, And we also have online a third central banker from Asia, Ravi Menon, Managing Director of the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and by the way, a very innovative central banker. Ravi, good evening for you in Singapore. Uh, and last but not least, I, I already welcome you, the general manager of the BIS, who is, so to say, the central banker of central bankers,
0: if you accept uh, this image. He's the epitome of everything we're trying to we're destroy. the
1: way we will proceed. We have about one hour. First, uh, we will try to look briefly at the global view on financial stability and decentralized finance. It will be introduced by Augustine Carstens, and then I will ask Jay, Ravi, and possibly Christine, if they want to, to react on this first part. And then we will have a second part, uh, which will be the longer one, on the responses of central banks, be it on innovation and or regulation. And uh, Commissioner Magness and myself mentioned these two important pillars, And it will be, it will start with Christine, and then Jay uh, presenting the European and then the American view uh, on the issue. Augustine, if you agree, let us give in five minutes the global view on financial stability and decentralized finance. And we all know how accurate you can be on such a sensitive issue.
3: very much. Thank you for having me here. It's a real pleasure to be in this grand event uh, prepared by the Bank to France and in this uh, magnificent uh, forum.
0: I think he came for for the lunch.
3: This is a very timely discussion. He just came for the food. Of course, we have been facing some circumstances uh, recently that has put financial stability issues at the top of our mind. And in addition, we have seen very important developments in the field of DeFi and as you said, we just we just witnessed a, a few months ago what you called the, 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 the crypto winter. Uh, financial stability issues, of course, are, are very important, and we have to assess assess the impact of DeFi into financial financial stability. Let me start very briefly, without uh, going on too long. We started with crypto assets, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, generally speaking. Problem there, major volatility, instability, lack of stable pricing. Next iteration was stable coins, which tried to address the issue of instability of cryptocurrencies. And then based on using crypto stable coins, The idea has been to use different decentralized protocols and consensus mechanisms plus cryptography to further uh, the application of digital assets to financial transactions. Therefore, DeFi has been created. I have to say it has been a quite uh, uh, unruly developments. It has, has developed in a very, I would say, less a fair way And uh, so, and and one of the big problems that uh, DeFi has as as we know it today is that it's it's basically the applications of of some cryptocurrencies with some other financial transactions that are self-referential. They really are not tied to real life uh, transactions or need. I mean, they facilitate borrowing, lending and trading but it's mostly only cryptocurrencies. And uh, it is based on, uh, uh, so DeFi depends and exposes intermediaries to the traditional risks that traditional financial intermediation establishes, which is liquidity risk, counterparty risk, leverage and so on and so forth. But they don't have the infrastructure to deal with that. Basically the way they have dealt with is by collateralized arrangements. And that's why stable coins is the grease on the wheels in DeFi. But oftentimes the, the collateralization is not effective. The governance of, of many of these DeFi transactions are not well established. And they depend to a large extent on exchange houses that do too many things at the same time without, without appropriate segregation of activities, accountability, and appropriate governance. This leads me to, I would say, the punchline of this initial uh, intervention, and, and that is that DeFi has today many structural problems that in a way, uh, uh, what we have seen today was not hard to predict. I mean, it was, we, and we had the VIS in different documents, established there, there are intrinsic weaknesses into the system that has, haven't been taken sufficiently and therefore it's not surprising that we have seen some, some stability issues in that sector. This has been compounded by the movement of interest rates but I won't say that the, the movement in interest rates has been an additional element, not a key element of the problems we're seeing in DeFi, in DeFi today. Now, that doesn't mean that the technology that is behind DeFi is not useful, that the ideas are not challenging, and challenging more in an intellectual way, that we, we need to think about it and that we should find ways to make good use of them. But what, what I see is that the, the, the development of DeFi is going in one direction, and what we all would like to see from a financial stability is going in another. Therefore, we need to, Close that gap, we need to work more together with the industry. We probably i I, 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 I would say uh, uh, in some ex, to some extent we, we we should go slower because we 're in a hurry uh, The problem when you you go in a hurry without much uh, reflection is that this leads to accidents, and this is exactly what we 're seeing so Uh, The financial stability issues, precise financial stability issues that concern me the most are the contact points between the DeFi world that is out there with the traditional systems. A lot of that takes place through the exchange houses, the the ramping up and ramping down of the system uh, and and some some, uh, leverage or some lending transactions where it is not very clear what is the collateral behind it. I think that we need to address them. I need to address them, but so far I think it it is contained. I would say that the huge challenge, and I finish with this, the huge challenge that we face is that DeFi and the crypto world is global and is borderless. And therefore, it requires huge amounts of coordination to bring this into an adequate regulatory perimeter that promises safety, but also allows for innovation. Thank you.
0: Thank
1: you very much,
3: Uh, it's a very stimulating introduction, I must say.
0: I mean, it wasn't bad, his comments weren't
3: that negative.
1: And perhaps also to come back to this issue of monetary normalization. Your image or your feeling was perhaps that these are more structural forces uh, which which are playing and that monetary normalization only played a minor role, Uh, I oversimplify, in the in the recent problems of of the crypto world, uh, but Jay, if you if you are ready to start your
0: Nasdaq is you at one point four percent, and thank now you again policy for policy. being with yes, us
1: welcome. in in Paris. In Paris,
4: you cherish. I should stress it again. Yes, and I'm I'm sorry not to be able to join you as you know uh, in person there today so i i would just uh begin by thanking you for uh, inviting me to take part and uh and also by agreeing with uh you know what the, the take that uh augustine articulated to begin with your your last question i i do think that the monetary policy normalization that we're seeing all over the world it, all it did was simply reveal what we've long pointed out as significant structural issues in the DeFi uh, ecosystem and conflict of interest. And all, all of those things have been revealed in effect as the tide has gone out. Uh, so I, I don't think that's a particularly important uh, uh, part of the question here. Really the, really the question is that within the DeFi ecosystem, there are these very significant uh, structural issues around transparency, uh, lack of transparency and um uh, I think I think Augustine did a nice job talking about them. So the good the good news, I suppose, is that the interaction between, from a financial stability standpoint, the interaction between the DeFi ecosystem and the traditional banking system and traditional financial system is not that large at this point. So we were able to witness the you know the, the DeFi winter, but it didn't have significant effects on on the banking system and broader financial stability and that's a good thing and i think it 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 demonstrates the weaknesses and and the work that needs to be done around regulation carefully and thoughtfully and gives us a little bit of time that that's that situation will not persist indefinitely ultimately uh, you know that's not a stable equilibrium and we we need to be very careful about i guess we'll get to this a little later but we need to be very careful about how crypto activities are taken within the regulatory perimeter. In any case, wherever they take place, as Augustine pointed out, there's a real need for more appropriate regulation so that uh, as, as a DeFi expands and starts to touch more and more retail customers and that sort of thing, uh, so that appropriate regulation is in place.
1: Right, that's Come back to regulation in our second part. Ravi, can I ask you a brief reaction also on this financial stability issue?
5: Yes. um, Well, thank you, Francois. And um, uh, thanks for the invitation to participate in this. And uh, greetings to my colleagues, uh, Augustine, Christine, Jay. Good to see you. Um, I generally agree with what uh, Augustine and Jay have said. Uh, Let me um, add uh, a couple of nuances. I would say uh, it will be useful to distinguish the various components of what we call the crypto ecosystem. Um, And I think the way the kinds of risks each of them pose and the kinds of benefits each of them pose uh, and what they mean for financial stability uh, would be quite different. Um, So if you look at uh, say tokenized assets, for instance. Uh, There are many banks experimenting with this. Basically, you express the uh, ownership rights over an asset as a digital token. uh, And uh, cash and bonds, uh, real assets, intangibles, carbon credits have all been tokenized. Um, These in and of itself, I think, uh, pose lesser risk, but they're not the predominant part of the ecosystem, unfortunately, although I think that's where the real potential lies. Um, Then you have cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies. Uh, for which I don't see any redeeming uh, value Uh, because they're meant to be used as a medium of exchange within the distributed ledger, but we have all seen how they've taken a life of their own outside and are posing a a range of risks, some of which Augustine has spoken about, Um, ranging from consumer protection, volatility in value, uh, money laundering risks, and even financial stability risks uh, Pushed to the extreme. Well, guys come out the um, blocks aggressive. And the speculation in these currencies has led to price changes that are nothing to do with the underlying economic value. And I think with the current monetary policy normalization process and tightening, uh, it is as Jay said, they're going to expose the uh, excessive uh, exuberance that has been attached to these cryptocurrencies. And I think they're going to be affected badly. Um, in fact all of us on this panel oh. i think in our own ways have been saying this uh the risks involved in uh investing in cryptocurrencies um but who listens to central bankers right um and i'm afraid it's uh, the time for reckoning has come i'm a little bit more wow the time um, for reckoning has come positive about stable coins if they're done well basically these are digital tokens whose value is pegged to another asset um and um they can have uh, a good potential as a medium of exchange because they're digital cash, they're programmable, uh, can be put on the ledger. Provided, provided he's pitching their a CBDC, value is fully backed by reserve assets. So the focus of regulation is quite different than stable coins. If we can crack that problem through an appropriate regulatory regime, I see more promise for stable coins. And uh, almost by definition, they should you know, reflect the demand for underlying fiat currencies to which they are pegged. And so the impact of interest rates and all that will be really reflecting the underlying assets. So I think we need to make distinctions across the three. And DeFi is a totally different animal. All these things that we discussed in the crypto world can operate in, alongside the traditional financial system. In fact, many banks and traditional players are involved in these uh, uh, innovations. Uh, DeFi is a totally different thing. And I fully agree with Augustine. There is a lot of stuff that's unknown. I would just say the central problem is that even if you can address the other risks, the big risk is where are you going to apply the regulation to? Because all our regulatory approaches are based on applying regulations to legal entities. In a decentralized world, you can't do that to an algorithm. At least there's governance and risk management responsibility on the players' Uh, that can make a difference in the DeFi world is exceedingly difficult. Uh, and that's something, uh, if we can overcome, I can see some promise in DeFi. Otherwise, this could be a game stopper. Um, but I want to say that you don't have to go as far as DeFi. Crypto assets and digital assets have a role to play alongside traditional finance. Some of them are working, some of them are not going to work. And I think the current normalization phase in monetary policy is going to expose which are the ones that are promising, and which are the ones that
1: are, are purely speculative. Thanks. I mean,
0: I mean, he was aggressive. He came out of Your the fully aggressive. I'm
1: sure the distinction you made between different animals will be useful when we will discuss more precisely regulation, uh, as Jay mentioned. By the way, you use the word cryptocurrencies sometimes. And usually we central bankers don't like that much the expression cryptocurrencies because these are, these are not currencies. These are crypto assets, but I'm sure we agree. (laughs) Uh, Christine, do you want at this stage to intervene and react or do you prefer to focus on on, on central bank response in the second part? Please, you you are very welcome. Bonjour.
2: Thank you so much. Thank, bonjour, Francois. Thank you so much uh, for having us. And uh, I think it's, it's very fitting, actually, that uh, we discuss this uh, enigmatic uh, phenomenon that took the world in a, such a stormy way, right in the middle of the museum in the world that keeps probably the most enigmatic painting, uh, Mona Lisa. So thank you for having us in the Louvre. It's, uh, it's just perfect. So just three points that I wanted to share with you, which I keep thinking of in relation to um, crypto assets uh, in general and uh, the impact it has had. First of all, the evolution has been stormy. It went from this uh, sort of cultural hype pushed by libertarians, promoted by Satoshi Nakamoto in his uh, wisdom and total anonymity, to being this uh, uh, tool that is now accepted by the PayPal, Visa and MasterCard of this world and which has been abused uh, by whether it was Terra or Luna but certainly Mr. Do who is on the run is the wow. side of that enigmatic coin uh, which warrants the regulation that has been advocated by both Jay and, uh, and Ravi. Second, where evolution has been uh, critically important is this search for yield which has clearly encouraged and accelerated the process at times when across the world we were in the lower bound bound and and where interests to be earned were limited and third, um, the world was caught by surprise. And from these uh, regular statements that we all made that, oh, of course, it was growing, but it wasn't systemic. Well, we are now at a stage where, you know, between 10 and 15% of uh, Europeans and Americans actually have invested in cryptos uh, in 21. At least I acknowledge that. uh, Where clearly regulators, uh, consumer protection agencies, supervisors are now really attentive to developments. So those are three interesting aspects, this cultural evolution, uh, the search for yield and the world called by surprise that I associate with the development of cryptos that I will go into uh, further details in the second um, second part of, of this
0: session, Francois. Thank you. It's amazing that they, acknowledge, it's amazing that they, that they acknowledge that 15% of people actually own it. So Echo, I wonder if each of you can be
1: on mute uh, uh, when you don't speak. But uh, we, we, we could uh, hear quite well. Uh, So, we come to the second part about the responses by central banks to this landscape you presented to us, Agustin. Obviously, it calls into question an almost philosophical point, the relation along history between public and private money. And as all of you have said, it's a question of combining regulation and or innovation in our responses. So as I said, I suggest that our two prominent central bankers across the Atlantic, first Christine and then Jay, focus on their view on the topic. Uh, my understanding, and I say it with a smile, that Christine, you intend to focus perhaps a bit more on innovation and CBDC, and Jen, you, Jay, you intend perhaps to focus a bit more on regulation. Perhaps people would have expected the US central banker to focus on innovation and the European one to focus on regulation. But at least it shows you that we are all on the same page of combining both. And Christine, if you agree, you start.
2: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Francois. And very briefly, by way of introduction, uh, the way it was, the disruption, and what we need to do, we central bankers, to stay ahead of the curve and be in the game. So the way it was and the way it is, in a way, is what you just alluded to, Francois, is this combination of public uh, and uh, and and private money, public money being the matter for central banks, uh, either cash for individuals or central bank uh, deposits uh, for banks, and um, private money, where commercial banks were the main uh, player, making up around 85% of M1, and being innovative with new forms of payment uh, from zero payments to cards to uh, any other things. And both of those, public and, and private money, actually complemented each other quite nicely. Then came the disruptors. And I, couldn't, I could not agree more with Ravi about the distinction that we have to make when we analyze The way forward and the regulatory framework where we have to distinguish between the crypto assets, the traditional bitcoins, ether of this world, and the stable coins. And where I totally agree with Ravi that uh, the, the, the crypto assets, not currencies, but the crypto assets are obviously Pure speculative assets, and I think that the movement that we have seen in the last 12 months is clear indication of the fact that it is indeed a speculative assets, and certainly not a means of payment, not a, a very stable store of value. That's one aspect. For now. The second aspect, which is more promising, and I also agree with Ravi on that, is the whole sector of the stable coins, which only represent about 10% of the entire crypto universe. So it's very minimal for the moment, but it is promising as long as we don't have uh, players that abuse the system, that pretend that they have liquid assets to back uh, their stable coins or that it's one for one when in fact it is not one for one and Terra is followed by Luna uh, bankruptcy. So, That is possibly disruptive, but it is for the moment, as I said, only 10% of this crypto universe that we are talking about. But it has created and it has probably accelerated the desire for more innovative ways of paying, more innovative ways of transacting. And as a result, digital payments are clearly in high demand. And this is more so in some countries, less so in others. Just to give you an example from Europe, Uh, In Sweden, for instance, there is virtually no cash transactions anymore, because cash is not there. Whereas currently in Austria, there is a referendum to uh, defeat a proposed regulation to request that payments uh, be not in cash uh, above 10,000 euros. Well, in Austria, they would like to be able to continue to pay more than 10,000 payments in cash. So there is great heterogeneity in the request, but we can see in the the surveys that we have conducted, that there is clearly an aspiration, a desire for digital payments, um, much more so than it was in the past, and this is growing. We are now in the surveys that we've conducted across the 19 19 members of the euro area, we have more than 50% of the respondents who say we want digital payments. Well, less use of cash, Um, demand for secure and riskless uh, payments, where do we stand? We central bankers, we have been operating as a monetary anchor in relation to the commercial banks and the private money. If we are not in that game, if we are not involved in experimenting in innovating in terms of digital uh, central bank money, we risk losing the role of anchor that we have played uh, for many, many decades. And we have historical examples of period where the central bank uh, monetary anchor was not there and that precipitated crisis after crisis. That certainly was the case at the time of the free banking in the 19th century. Do we want to go back to those days? Probably not. I would say certainly not from our vantage point, as a result of which we have to respond to the demand for those digital payments in order to maintain the role of anchor that we have uh, been playing uh, regularly so what have we done here in europe and uh, with the whole euro system including all the central banks that are members including notably I mean, uh, the bank de france which has been they've
0: got 5780 people watching we've got 8730 people watching what does that tell you what a, what a community guys well, if you're here, just smash the like button. She's talking Do a lot of garbage. In the meantime, this just smash the like button and let people know we're here. Yeah. Let's get the number up. The
2: preferences, the, 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 the media that could be used and the characteristics that uh, should be presented by the, the, the digital euro, as we, as we call it. We're not the only one. Back when I started as president of the ECB, there were about 30 central banks that were looking at it. As we speak now, and I have
0: nothing to do. When you smash the like, just watch the viewers go up. So there's 8,761 now. If you all smash the like button, watch how, how quickly new viewers join us.
2: Central banks that are currently looking at CBDCs and exploring what characteristics it should have. So for us, it's the digital euro project. We will decide in about a year's time whether we actually move into. Uh, phase and, and prepare the post prototype phase. We are now currently in the prototype phase and we're certainly wow. not ahead of the game because uh, PBOC in China is ahead of us and a few others. But we are not doing badly in terms of uh, timetable and we are sticking to it. What I would like to do, Francois, is just very briefly go through the characteristics that we see as, as important. First of all, it has to be a convenient medium of exchange that it becomes part of everyday's life for the Europeans. Number two, and why is that? Because customers, Europeans who have been surveyed, have indicated that they want to be able to pay anywhere and expect instant, easy, and contactless payment, especially person-to-person payments. Second, it has to be a success. It is not a venture that you can, you can go lukewarm. You have to be 100% sure that it it will actually work. You cannot fail on that one. There are pitfalls, obviously. And uh, if a digital euro is, is overused, for instance, as a form of investment, it could crowd out. Uh, commercial bank deposits and affect credit intermediation in the economy. So while we talk about DeFi, which is disintermediation essentially, and finance determined by protocol, the way we are thinking about it includes actually intermediaries and makes sure that commercial banks are part of of the system. We also uh, believe that there should be uh, well-designed safeguards uh, that either would okay, include limitations to let's, the holdings so we or would hold include it. a sophisticated tiering system uh, in terms of uh, remuneration in order to prevent that the digital euro become a, a, a very um, uh, attractive uh, investment more than um, a mean of payment. We want appropriate pricing and distribution via payment service providers because, as I said, it's not something that would be done in structure without the intermediation of the commercial banks or other private parties, actually. Uh, but certainly uh, the, the pricing should be right. And all of that is intended for the retail segment of the uh, digital euro, which doesn't mean to say that it would exclude, quite to the contrary, actually, a wholesale. Um, uh, settlement uh, infrastructures that is often referred to as the wholesale CBDCs. Actually, that in, in a way uh, exists already, although in maybe a preliminary and not sophisticated enough form, but certainly the wholesale CBDC uh, must be explored, must be part and parcel of the overall system. And I know this is something that Francois, you feel strongly about as I do. Um, And the settlement infrastructure on which we operate, uh, which has a dimension of digital about it, needs to be significantly upgraded and needs to be made more digital than it is at the moment. And in that respect, if the counterparties, if the commercial banks with which we operate, uh, expect uh, distributed ledger technology to be part of the improved infrastructure payment, then we should certainly be open to it and be prepared to uh, endorse uh, the digital uh, ledger technology as part of this improved uh, infrastructure mechanism. So well advanced on our way and uh, moving into, as I said, prototype phase that would precede the decision by the governing council to affect, effectively move ahead with the project. Thank you, François.
0: They're talking about CBDC, they're not talking about, about I mean, with us there's an agenda an here. Open
1: and clear way your thoughts and question on CBDC, including how to work with intermediaries. I'm sure it's of great interest for the participants in the conference. Jay, can I now turn to you? And you insisted rightly on the importance of regulation. I know that the Fed's research and reflection on stable coins, for instance, is of utmost interest. Jay, I only add that I cannot resist the temptation to invite you at the end, if you are ready, to say some words about CBDC also seen from the other side of the Atlantic, but up to you.
4: Thank you, Francois. And You've also given me a perfect opportunity to point out that we have a, a long and proud history, actually, on uh, um, working alongside the private sector in, in support of responsible innovation that encourages efficiency, lowers costs, and brings better products to the public. We do favor Responsible innovation, including in crypto-related services or products, I think back to uh, the times when when checks uh, kind of uh, became obsolete in a lot of ways, and we, we we were very much in the middle of fostering that transition. The Fed is also uh, uh, roughly a year away from rolling out uh, Fed Now, which is an instant payment system that will make instant uh, real-time payments available to uh, to the public through their banks. So. Uh, the whole point of regulation, of course, is to create a level playing field that will allow us to reap the benefits of true innovation while avoiding the pitfalls of regulatory evasion. Um, so turning to regulation, uh, I guess I'll make a couple of higher level points about the regulatory challenge that we all face and then talk a little bit more about stable coins, which I agree are to be thought of as quite different from unbacked uh, crypto assets. So um, I guess the, the fundamental principle for, for all of us, I guess, is, is same risk, same regulation. Some of these crypto uh, activities resemble traditional financial activities, uh, and, and they need that. They need same risk, same regulation, wherever they take place. There are also some novel uh, activities, though, uh, genuinely novel, that are really a paradigm shift. Uh, for example, uh, replacing intermediaries with smart contracts or decentralized governance and control structures. And so these novel structures create potential new risks. And I think we have a lot of work to do on that. We've got a lot of work to do across both the the more traditional looking parts of DeFi, but but especially for the novel aspects of it. An example would be unhosted wallets, for example, which allow users to custody their own crypto assets. However, they can also be used to evade sanctions or engage in money laundering. And there are other novel aspects of it that are quite challenging not least uh, as t- i guess two of my colleagues have pointed out the fact that that this is a borderless uh world and just uh we, we look to regulate an entity and as i think ravi pointed out if that entity is an algorithm how do we how do we do that so there's a lot of work and a lot of thinking to do to determine what practices are acceptable which ones are flawed and predatory uh, what can be done to address these problems this is this is new technology. It certainly has the possibility to bring improvements and efficiencies to the financial system. We've got to realize, though, that in some cases, these apparent efficiencies are really super visual, superficial in the sense that the cost saving comes from ignoring risks or failing to maintain appropriate uh, levels of assets to and liquidity to deal with those risks in good time and bad uh, and from complying with laws. So, those are some higher-level points. on on stablecoins in particular. So, as, uh, as I think others have pointed out, most of the usage of stablecoins now is on the, the crypto platforms. In effect, uh, stablecoins are a money-like asset that is used to settle transactions on DeFi platforms. Um, but uh, many stablecoin issuers are talking about, it, and there's a great deal of interest, I think everywhere, among potential stablecoin issuers to reach the general public more broadly including retail payments and that sort of thing and i think so that's really what what our, uh, our our main focus here from a regulatory standpoint is is uh should stable coins be used in that way much more broadly much more public facing away from the crypto platforms what's the appropriate regulatory structure and we have um a group of uh, u.s regulatory agencies under the leadership of the treasury department Uh, Put together a proposal that, uh, or an analysis and a proposal, and we encourage Congress to pass legislation, which we think is needed for uh, for this kind of stablecoins. I'm happy to say that the House Financial Services Committee here in the United States is working on a bipartisan bill. Um, We and that's that's a very constructive uh, enterprise. I will say that, from from the standpoint of of the Fed, the central bank. Uh, we think that the central bank is and and will always be the main source of trust behind money. Stablecoins essentially borrow that trust from the underlying issuer, and and in many cases these are dollar stablecoins, so they're really borrowing that trust. These are private forms of money; they will be subject to runs if the, if the assets, if their reserves are not full of, of of very high quality assets. So there's a, there's a regulatory job to be done there. We also think. If you're going to have private money uh, created across the country, really there needs to be a federal role. I would liken it to what happens with the dual banking system here, where there's a very important role for state regulators, but there's also a role for any commercial bank in the United States. There's also a role in licensing that bank to operate uh, at the Fed or or another federal agency. And in the case of this, which is money creation, um, you know, we think think it really should be the Fed that, that that does play that role.
0: Flat pump slack um, pump
4: so that's very our slack. principal focus now, I would say, turning to to your question so cash is not disappearing here in the United States. we still use cash quite a lot. it is declining not in absolute terms but compared to non cash payments it's declining um, and we're motivated by uh, really what what Christine was saying to look very carefully at. Uh, at the potential costs and benefits benefits of issuing a, a central bank digital currency here in the United States. So um, we, we agree that the, the, the central bank has always provided the stable, trusted anchor for the currency. That's really perhaps our most fundamental role as central banks, one of the most fundamental roles anyway. So we're looking at it very carefully. Uh, we're evaluating both the policy issues and the technology issues. And we're doing that with a very broad scope. Uh, we have not decided to proceed, and we don't see ourselves as making that decision for some time. We see ourselves uh, uh, as working in collaboration with with both uh, Congress, of course, and, but also with with the executive branch, which brings um, expertise uh, to many of the issues that we that we have to deal with here. And at the end of the day, we will need approval from both the executive branch and Congress to move ahead with a central bank digital currency. So we see this as a, as a process of at least a couple of years where we're doing work and uh, building public confidence in our analysis and in, in our ultimate conclusions, which as I say, we, we, we certainly haven't reached yet. Um, and uh, I guess I would just say that's that's where we are. We've, we've got a lot of work to do. There are many more things to say, uh, Francois, but I'll, I'll stop there.
0: Uh, I think we should also stop there. I think we've pretty much heard everything that there is to say. No big news coming out of this. No big news coming out of this. But, I mean, there is some news, um, specifically if they're working on CBDCs, specifically in Europe, making good headway. And, you know, we don't want CBDCs because CBDCs will control where you spend, how much you spend. And I always give the example that, you know, if they impose lockdowns again and and – they could then limit your wallet to not be able to spend at a certain time. So let's say that there's a lockdown that's imposed that no one is allowed to leave home at uh, 10 p.m. or past 10 p.m. If you leave your home past 10 p.m., your wallet won't be able to work. And if you want to go and buy diapers, well, tough luck, you can't buy. It. That's just the way it is. So we're going to be very much against. I see. Well, hold on. I see. Piles back on.
4: This is this is a world in which. Um, stable coins are being offered to more to the general public. So they have aspects of bank deposits. You could say they're, they have aspects of, of money market funds. And of course, both of those are very uh, substantially regulated and appropriately so, because the, the general public will look at, I think we know from our experience over time, they'll look at, at a form of private money like that. And they'll assume that it's money, that it's, that it's, that it's money good but it has the central bank's backing uh, or something like that so that, that they can tr- trust it. And we just need to make sure that that if the public is going to be facing and, and dealing with stable coins uh, that, that, that carry that implication, that the reality is there. That And I, I guess Ravi mentioned the reserves. The reserves need to be transparent, publicly, uh, you know, publicly transparent to the public. And they need to consist of the kind of you know, credit credit assets that will always be there when there's a need to fund withdrawals, because otherwise the the structure will be run proof, and we saw that in the last few months, uh, in a couple of cases where where stablecoins were not able the to handle a the pump withdrawals, and 20, we saw it regularly with money market funds in the last two financial crises. In in both of those cases, some of the money market funds were were not able to. Are, are really struggled to keep up and the Fed had to step in and, and provide liquidity to that part of the market so again that's another form of private money and we think it, it needs appropriate regulation
0: all right so that's Paul sure um, uh, guys first of all I mean thank you it's been amazing hosting all of you 9,500 people which is I mean more people than than they had by a long shot by a long way um, before we go before we go so a couple of things uh, number one, so I mean, more people, then the trading competition launches tomorrow um, on BitGet and Bybit. Number two, if you haven't already traded futures on Bybit, go and deposit $1,000 into Bybit and you could get a uh, um, $1,000 ETH position in Bybit. All you need to do is just click here and, and that's what happens. Also, tomorrow I'll be 10xing some BitGet portfolios. So what I need to do is do, if you're in the States or wherever you are, just go and hit that, that link over there. And you'll get yourself a, a, a BitGet account, deposit money into the BitGet account, and tomorrow I'll be 10 xing a couple of BitGet portfolios. Lastly, 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 go and have a look at our Discord. So everything, all the big calls are in the Discord. Oh, man. Uh, James, it says this, the, the, the Discord invite has expired. Let's, t- let's try and get the right one. Um, hold on. Let's try and get the right... Um, there we go. Okay, I don't know why it says, it says I don't have permission to join. But there's 20,000 people on the Discord. So go and have a look at the Discord. All our calls are there live. And you can also, everyone says it's, it's the best Discord ever. And it is the best Discord ever. Go and, get it, go and check it out. Also, if you do have an exchange account using our referral link, that means you get access to the VIPs. Guys, I will see you guys again, maybe tomorrow. If not tomorrow, the next day. Tomorrow, I'm at Token 2049. I've got a couple of big interviews lined up. If I'm not here tomorrow, um, I will be back. I'll be back here on Thursday. So I'll see you guys again then, until then. Trade well, my friends, have fun.